So, Mark. Yes? At one point in this movie, our hero, Lan Ying Lin, goes undercover in the Caribbean territory of Porto Juan. Porto Juan. <laughs> Juan not, port, if you're an English speaker. Not Porto, like one word. Port space O apostrophe space J-U-A-N. It's Porto Juan. Porto Juan. So Lan Ying goes undercover in Porto Juan, and her cover is that she is a dancer. And she's looking for a job at the tavern, which is one of the only things in Porto Juan. She is clearly too well-dressed to be at this tavern. <laughs> right. And so she presents herself as like, I'm a legit dancer. Like, I just did, like, an act in Trinidad, and I want to do my act here. And it works. She puts on her act, which is titled Daughter of Shanghai. And it's good. It is. So I was wondering, Mark, if you had to go undercover in Porto Juan, or somewhere similar, but probably Porto Juan, <laughs> what performance would you do as cover? So, I believe I would undertake the act that everyone loves the most and really bring in the audience, ventriloquism. Oh, boy. I would bust out a puppet, give a ventriloquist act, and you know the real reason? Puppet, perfect hiding place for a weapon. Oh, great point. So, when everyone turns on me, I could just shoot my way out of there and accomplish (laughs) nothing. I like that. That's good. Um, yep, I got nothing else. That's my idea. Yeah, like, my best case scenario is that Parks and Rec episode where Chris Pratt is just explaining movies to a captive audience. I think you could give a nice performance of, I can't remember which song, but you had a song in She Loves Me, the musical. (laughs) Yes, I sang Perspective. Perspective. So that's what I would actually do. I would do a... A musical review of half-remembered musical theater <laughs> songs. I think that would be perfect. Just a lot of uh, Judas busting out all over vibes. Right. Yeah, I don't think I would be as successful as Lan Yin was. I don't think either of us would be, especially if I tried to go with ventriloquism. I but am pre- at least you're prepared. Yeah. I do think that it is a good way of sneaking things into uh, infiltration because people aren't going to look inside the puppet. Yeah, no, it's good thinking. Then you have the trigger inside. There's a little hole in the head of the puppet. You just turn it on the side and pew! Okay, that's part of what I was wondering. Like, were you hiding a weapon within the puppet or is the puppet a weapon? I think the puppet should be a weapon. So, like, in the puppet's open mouth is, like, the barrel of, of, like, a blowgun. Yeah, that would work. And then when your hand's inside, you just pull the trigger. Okay, that's interesting. That's a good idea. I like that. Hollywood, call me. I could be the next Q for the new James Bond. Mark, you want to just make some predictions right now who the next James Bond is going to be? Is it not going to be um, Lashana Lynch? It could be, but I don't think, like, they are not at all committed to that. Uh, She plays 007, Agent 007 in No Time to Die. Yeah. But I suspect that the Broccoli family is going to want to cast a person to play someone named James Bond. Yeah, I was kind of worried about that. I think they wanted the credit of being like, oh, look, we cast a black woman as 007 without actually following through, and it's just going to be a white man. I mean, I will say this. It works well in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, she is good in the movie, and the character is well-served in the movie. It is not just some token thing. Yeah. I didn't watch the movie, and I don't know much about it, but it is good that she at least has a real role in it. But that that movie is very much an an end-of-an-era movie where probably leaving these versions of these characters behind. Mm-hmm. I uh, 
also wouldn't be surprised if they do just like erase all continuity and start over. I mean, what I would love them to do is go back. I think the Craig era was a fun experiment, but go back to basically no continuity, which is the way it was until the Craig movies. Yeah, that would be good too. I don't know what the future holds for James Bond because they also could do a woman and then switch back to the like no continuity, which would be fun. Right. I think it could be a bit sillier. James Bond always was silly. Yeah, you know, I think it's fine that Bond goes through these different eras. I think by the end of the Brosnan movies, it was a good shift to go a little more serious. But we've swung hard enough in that direction that, yeah, it's time to get a little ridiculous. It's time to have a volcano base. This is a series that has a movie called Octopussy. Sure does. And a character named Pussy Galore. Like, let's not pretend it's always been, like, serious high cinema. And Pussy Galore is from one of the, like, best, most famous, more serious ones. And, like, that to me is the appeal of Bond, is that it can be so many... Bond is like Batman, in that he can be inserted into a lot of different genres, and it's time to mix it up a little bit. Yes. Again, Hollywood, call us. This also goes for Batman. I like the new movie, but it's time for Batman to be sillier, too. I think we need to swing fully around back to Adam West TV Batman. Get another Joker that refuses to shave his mustache that they just put makeup over. That Adam West movie is good. I haven't seen it, but all I know is Cesar Romero refused to shave his mustache. (laughs) Yeah, but you gotta keep it right. You know, people were watching it on tiny TV screens. Yeah, there's no real point for it. There was no assumption that people would be watching that in HD ever. Yeah. I do think that... The only way that I would be fine with another super serious one is they picked one of his most ridiculous villains and tried to make him serious, like Calendar Man. That is a game people have been playing in the comics for a while, is like, can we just like show you the like real dark version? Like there's this famous comic story from like the 2000s called The Long Halloween, and it is like a dark Batman. It's an iconic dark Batman story. And the villain is Clock King, I think, or it might be Calendar Man. I, I actually have not read The Long Halloween. I mean, Calendar Man is the most famous, ridiculous villain, I'd say. Uh, yes, Calendar Man plays a big role in it, but it's a new villain called Holiday. <laughs> Holiday. Um, wow. That does sound kind of interesting, but also Calendar Man is by far the funniest supervillain to me. Yes. Uh, the Long Halloween, a classic that I have not read, written by Jeff Loeb, who has written some very good comics but also allegedly would never have produced the movie we're here to talk about this week. I do think that we should start talking about this movie. This might be our first episode that is longer than the movie. Uh, That, by the way, was a reference. Jeff Loeb, for a long time, was the head of Marvel Television before it came under the purview of Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios. And Loeb, allegedly, but alleged by a lot of people, had some pretty serious uh, anti-Asian biases at the time. For example, in the producing of Iron Fist. Oh. And also in Daredevil, where he repeatedly tried to lessen the roles of a lot of Asian characters established in that show. Wow, I did not know that. So, wow, yeah, he really would not have produced this movie, which is... Feels like he wouldn't have. ...a surprising movie for 1937. Yeah, let's talk about it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Bark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast, much like this investigative movie, but instead of looking into smugglers and kidnappers, we're looking into the question of whether Hollywood romance actually makes any sense. And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, which is good because it is scant. Or just, like, 
completely out of left to, field. Assumed to happen because they're the only two Asian characters. We'll dig in and see what's there. This week, we are taking a look at Robert Flory's 1937 B-movie noir, Daughter of Shanghai. This was a good reminder for me that B-movie does not just mean bad science fiction, because that is what I think of. No, for the most part, it just meant genre, and detective movies for a long time were very much in the genre movie category. Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten that when it was like reading about this being a B-movie, and I was like, wait, I thought B-movies were like the son of the wolf man. <laughs> but this movie, very good. Yeah, this movie rocks. It's a tight 60-minute film. Yeah, there is not a wasted moment. No, it moves. Arguably a little too quickly, at least if it wants to have a romance. Yeah, it really could have slowed down and let this romance happen because I thought the act, like, it worked. I would have liked to watch these performers have a romance. Right, I would have liked to have actually seen them fall in love. But the performances in this movie are really good. I love that the villain is a rich white woman and the heroes are a... Chinese woman, a Korean man, and then an Irish stereotype at the very end. (laughs) I just, it's so funny to me because Anna Mae Wong and, um... Philip Ahn. Philip Ahn are given, like, well-rounded characters, down-to-earth, not stereotypical. It feels revolutionary. It feels revolutionary. (laughs) And then at the end, there's Kelly, this, like, bumbling Irish idiot... (laughs) <laughs> just like punches that people that's just his punches people and it's just like the worst stereotype and i was like wow but at least he's not a villain but it was so funny that just like out of left field this movie's like oh don't worry we're still a racist hollywood movie it's just the irish that we hate i liked the moment when we later <laughs> learned this is kelly like pretending to be bad so that he could help them but he's like yeah i've done time for everything from burglary to arson <laughs> Oh my god. Kelly, the casual arsonist. (laughs) It was, it was so funny. A twist, that's a twist I did not see coming. It was great. Well, I was very disappointed when he seemed evil because I called out early, like, Kelly's going to be the guy that I date in this movie. I like wrote it down in my notes. I'm dating Kelly, the punching chauffeur. And then I was worried when it became clear that the old lady was behind this, uh, like, smuggling ring. I was like, ah, does Kelly know? And then it became very clear, like, she was always sending him out of the room. Kelly did not know about this. I'm like, yes, we're good. But then he seemed like he was upset that he wasn't in on it. He's like, I'm good. Like, I could have been in on it. I've done burglary. I've done arson. Like, I'll do kidnapping. But then that was a cover. He's good. Never mind. I'm calling it now. I would date Kelly. Wow. Okay. Shooting your shot early. (laughs) Yeah, I feel good about it. So this movie is... To give a brief plot summary, because we will not get into that during the romance. Well, Um, we will a little bit, because we got to talk about Olga. True. Uh, So this movie stars Anime Wong, who is considered the first Asian-American celebrity. She was uh, considered, I learned, one of the most fashionable women on the planet. Yeah, she was an early adopter of the flapper aesthetic. And started in silence, transitioned into talkies. She started in silence at 14 in uncredited walk-on roles because she was skipping school to go and hang around movie sets when, like, the silent era was first coming to L.A. because they'd been driven out of New York by Thomas Edison. That's such an L.A., like, early Hollywood story. Um, And she plays Lan Ying Lin, the daughter of an art dealer who gets involved in human smuggling 
or human trafficking. Uh, what do they call it? Like, they refer to aliens a lot. And they talk about smuggling, smuggling aliens. Yeah. And so, human trafficking, her father's involved somewhat. No, her father is, like, an antiquities dealer. Yes. Okay. He's a Chinese antiquities dealer, and he's a very successful businessman. He's got, like, a bunch of warehouses and shops and stuff like that. And the smugglers go to him because they're like, you use a lot of workers. And he's like, yeah, I do. I'm really successful. And they're like, what if you had workers that you didn't have to pay? That's it. What if you were buying smuggled immigrants from us? And he's like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And instead, he is like working to bring down this smuggling ring. That's it. So he's kind of like talking with them, but to gather information for the feds. Hoover's boys. The movie opens with a very distressing scene in which a plane is smuggling, trafficking victims into the U.S. And when a American government biplane shows up to pull them down, the the government's planes are getting faster every day. They open their cargo bay and just kill everyone in their plane. They just dump them into like San Francisco Harbor. Yeah, they really at the beginning are like these are terrible people. Yeah, a thing I appreciate about this movie is that, like, it is very anti-human smugglers, but it never is, like, demonizing the people who want to come to the United States. No, it's very sympathetic towards the victims, and it's not actually, like, an anti-immigration movie. It's about, you know, evil people doing evil things. Taking advantage of desperate people. Yeah. Which is interesting when you think about where this movie falls in the history of U.S. immigration, because the first immigration law is the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1884. Mm -hmm. By that point, Anna Mae Wong's family was already in the United States. They came before the Civil War to California. But... That law bans immigration from China for 60 years. But then in 1924, the National Origins Act puts all these quotas on how many people can come in each year from different countries. And the numbers from Asia in particular are just astronomically low. Yeah, it's like two. Right. And so this movie's coming out 13 years into that period, the period of national quota-based immigration. And it feels like it's a movie that's very much engaging with what that means for people who want to come to the United States. Mm Mm-hmm. I learned that Philip Ahn, his parents were a married couple, Korean couple, who were pro-independence advocates who Mm -hmm. went to the U.S. in 1900, and he became the first American-born Korean-American citizen. That's really cool. Like, in the U.S. I didn't know that. And then he became a famous actor. His younger sister became the first Asian-American woman in the Navy and reached the rank of lieutenant in, like, 1946. That rocks. They're a crazy cool family. And this movie was developed as a vehicle for Anna Mae Wong. Like you said, she was a a, a real star Mm -hmm. of the silent era into the sound era. And even towards the end of her career in TV, she was the first Asian American star of a TV show. Which is now lost because I looked it up trying to see if we could watch it. No, I mean, it was for Dumont and most of their shows are lost. Yeah, they just literally dumped them in the Hudson River. (laughs) Yeah, the the network went under and they said, because we don't need these anymore. It's awful. But, you know, she has a lot of movies with these starring roles that are really cool. I think she's great in this. As much as Anime Wong has been in a bunch of movies, it's a shame she wasn't in a lot more. But that's as she got more power, she used that power to refuse playing stereotypical roles as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's great that she was able to do that. And it stinks that Hollywood didn't meet that with better material. Right. Because she basically was not 
given good roles because of the Hayes Code, where they were like, oh, well, we cast this white actor in yellow face, which means we can't have an actual Chinese actor to play the love interest. Because that'll be an interracial couple. Because that'll be an interracial couple. So then she ends up getting only, like, villain roles or, you know, smaller roles until she becomes a celebrity. Then I think in 1935, when they're making Pearl S. Bucks... The Good uh, Earth. The Good Earth. She is not given the lead role because of that. And then she kind of takes a break. As near as historians can tell, and we there are a lot of movies, especially from the silent era, that are just fully lost that we don't have. As near as people can tell, this is the first on-screen romance between two Asian characters that are both played by Asian actors. 1937. Yes, and it is also barely a romance. And it's barely a romance. They don't kiss or make physical contact. And again, her family alone was in the U.S. since before the Civil War. Like, it's not like there was, oh, it's a new immigration store. No, like... Right. (laughs) They were in L.A. Her family was in L.A., there could have been movies like this. Yes. And like we said, this is a really good movie. It's a noir. It's a detective, you know, not professional detectives, but like it's a detective movie. Well, he's a professional detective. I guess, yeah, he works for the FBI. Like, it's kind of a social drama. It's just like a good little pot boiler. Right. And I mean, there's action, there's murders, there's dancing. What more could you want? What more All could in an you hour. Want? I know. <laughs> In a very action-packed hour. Yeah. The movie's directed by Robert Flory, who basically was like a B-movie specialist. Like, he directed Murders in the Rue Morgue and a whole bunch of other, like, noir-y and vaguely horror-y B-movies. He did also direct the first ever Marx Brothers movie. Oh, wow. Which is The Coconuts. Which is far from the best Marx Brothers movie, but it does feature Lydia the Tattooed Lady, which is a, a great song. I have not seen that one. I haven't seen most of the Marx Brothers movies, Yeah, though, you should be real. There are other ones to watch before you do that one. Yeah. Now, like we said, there is not much romance to talk about here. No. But should we do it? Yes. I do want to say that this is one of the first movies I've watched in a while where I said, this movie should be longer, and the only thing that should be added is more time for the romance to happen. Hey! You're absolutely right about both of those things. So I think we should get into the romance as it is. I've had to break this up into two relationships, one of which is kind of confirmed at the end of the movie, and the other one I'm just reading as implied. I guess. Yeah. That's fair. I didn't really see it as much, but you can read it that way. Yeah, I also need five points. Yeah. I mean, I read. we'll get into it. I read their relationship as business-based. Sure. But again, I need five points. Yes. This movie does not provide much. Uh, Okay. So Daughter of Shanghai. Like we said, there's this beginning with Lan Ying's father who is investigating the trafficking ring. He is prepared to reveal all. He basically knows everything except who the head boss is. And as they're taking a cab to go and reveal this to the FBI, they're kidnapped. He's murdered. She escapes. And Lan Ying barely escapes with her life. She rushes to their good family friend, Mary Hunt. And it's like, oh my gosh, Mary! But right before we see Mary Hunt saying, <laughs> revealing her true nature as the boss of this operation. Girl power. Girl boss energy. But Mrs. Hunt is playing both sides of it, where she is running the trafficking ring, but she is also like, 
chatting with the police and the FBI about like, mm, what can be done about these horrible things? I am a woman who cares about what's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a society woman who's interested in the issues of the day. I do love like the timing of her henchmen's like, yeah, you know, he's dead. She's dead. We're good. She's like, are you sure she's dead? Yeah, she was in the cab. And then she's like, you didn't make sure. And immediately there is a knock on the door and it is Lan Ying. And when she comes in, she meets Kimli, who is the FBI agent assigned to this case. He is a, a guy. Yeah, he's a he's a guy. He's a he's a good looking dude. <laughs> he's a good looking, kind of bland FBI agent. <laughs> Seems invested in solving this issue. Mr. Hoover would be proud. I don't think Mr. Hoover would have been very happy with <laughs> an Asian American FBI agent doing this well. Well, I mean, he would want the FBI to look good. Yes. And I think Mr. Hoover would be happy with any movie that makes the FBI look good. That is true. So uh, they meet. It seems like they are, are happy to have a, a nice business relationship. He is like, I am an FBI agent. I will do investigations. You, Lan Ying, should not conduct investigations. And yet. Well, that's the end of point one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Lan Ying ultimately decides to do an investigation, which is what leads her to Porto Wan. On her own. Because she's figured out that that's like the clearinghouse for these people. Like, they're brought from their home countries to Porto Wan, and from there, they're brought to the United States. Mm-hmm. They're, like, on a boat, and then picked up by a plane, and then brought to San Francisco. So she's going there. She's hunting for Otto Hartman, who's the number two in the trafficking ring. And she realizes Hartman, in addition to running the trafficking ring, also runs this, like, dance hall. Yeah. Bar in Porto Wan. Because... As I learned in my anti-money laundering class, restaurants, bars, and laundromats are the easiest places to launder money through. You bet. If you want to know more detail about how to hide your finances from the feds, just tweet at us. Uh, just mention that you're looking for Mark with the hashtag launderme! Exclamation point. <laughs> Don't do that. Again, that's hashtag launderme! Exclamation point. And Mark will give you tips on how to hide your money from the feds. I will do no such thing. He gave a really big wink when he said that, so he, he's got you. Will, you're going to get my credentials taken away. Hashtag launder me, exclamation I have those on my resume. So, point number two, Lan Ying is looking for or Hartman, and so her cover, as we said, is that she's going to be a dancer. But Olga keeps saying, no, she can't have a job. And everyone else is like, yeah, go talk to Hartman. He's over there. Yeah, Hartman always hires people. And Olga's like, no, no, no. Mark, you think this is, there is a business reason for this. Yeah, she doesn't want to be replaced as the lead dancer. But I've chosen, <laughs> for the sake of having five points, that Olga is in love with Hartman. I think she is actively sleeping with Hartman, and she wants it to be exclusive. Okay. I can, I can believe that as a reading of this movie. Yeah. So then in point number three, Lan Ying finds Hartman. He's like, yeah, you know what? Like, you'll be something different. We don't have any Asian dancers. So you're good for now, and we'll put on a show. And I don't pay salaries. I just pay housing. Room, board, and then a cut of the tips. And he basically says, like, and your cut could be bigger. And he's, like, kind of implying, like, if you have sex with me. Right. But immediately then, Olga walks in the room, and it's like, what are you doing? Yes. And that's where you could read that as a business thing. Yeah, because Olga is trying to protect her interests as the lead girl. And presumably she's getting a, a good cut. Mm-hmm. But you could also read it as Olga being like, Hartman, you're not supposed to sleep with the other girls. Yes. I think your reading is probably more correct. But I would also believe that both of us are right. 
Later that night, Lan Ying, looking for evidence of Hartman's role in the trafficking ring, breaks into his room. Where she runs into Kim. Yep. And that brings us to point four. Yeah, they seem like a good pair. They're actually working pretty well tag-teaming this investigation. They're finding out all the information they need. They both managed to get on the ship with all of the aliens. Yeah, he's working as a smuggler, essentially. Yeah, and so he's making sure she gets included in the batch that's going on to San Francisco. So yeah, they're, they're doing a good job working together, and it seems like they have a, a very effective professional team. I mean, they both get captured multiple times. They do. There is a, a serious threat of sexual violence against Lan Ying. So they're not that good <laughs> in some ways. Yes, but they do adapt well. Like, even then when they get back to San Francisco and they're found out by Mary Hart and they're, like, probably going to be killed by her, they still manage to work together and with the help of Kelly the Punching Chauffeur to ultimately escape and have Mary Hunt arrested. Yeah, he manages to call the cops, call the operator specifically. Yeah, and so they've they've shut down this trafficking ring. Um, and then point five, while they're in the car. <laughs> point number five, the final scene, they are in a car driving away. And Kim is like, back to Washington for me, back, you know, back, back to the bureau. And he's like, you know, Lan Ying, you should move to Washington too. It'd be a nice fresh start. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. Like her father was killed. She's got nothing else here. The lawyer is going to take care of the business. She says a change of weather might do me good. Yeah, Mark, just like, it's really weird that in his will, the dad could just be like, tell our lawyer that he's in charge of this business now. But it's really implied like he's in charge of the business, but you will still be making all the money. Right. It's very strange. Uh, he's the consigliere. Basically, yeah. But anyway, Lan Ying is like, oh, yeah, like it, it would be good to get a, a change of weather, a change of pace, get away from all of the sad times that I've spent here in San Francisco. But that's not what she says. No, she does say that and then follows it up with, so I guess we're engaged now. She says, like, is that a proposal? Oh, that's it. Yeah. And then he then proposes to her and she accepts and that's the end of the movie. That's the end. They don't kiss. Which is lame. Oh my goodness. So do you find the romance of Daughter of Shanghai believable? Look, I think it's worth considering it as a period, like as something in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. When, frankly, people would propose with much less buildup than they do now. It's true. Like, I... I kind of do believe this. I kind of do. Again, one conversation outside of action. I would love that. Right. And that's why, like, I'm going to give this movie a six. Okay. I think it is more believable than not, given the standards of the time, but... Yeah, they never discuss anything except for this particular investigation. That's why I was going to go with, like, a four. That's fine. Do you think that either of them are dateable? Yep, yeah, uh, basically both of them. They both seem great. Yes, I agree. Especially Lan Ying, who's really cool. Yeah, she's going to be running this business. And by running, I mean getting the money from this business while someone Passively does all the profiting. work. <laughs> and uh, Kim is, like, a really quick thinker. He's good at adapting and finding solutions to things. Now, I will say, I would actually not want to date anyone who works in J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Yeah, I would probably prefer not to. They are very close to beginning the, like, assassinations and COINTELPRO and all that. But being Korean-American, he's probably not, like, close to Hoover. Well, tr yes. I mean, that is true. But still, evil organization under yes. that man. Um, do you think this couple will stay together? Yes, because divorce 
in America in the 1930s and 40s was not something that happened much. I mean, it's doable. Like, they could do it. Yeah, she could move. Oh, do you mean stay together or get divorced? Both? Yeah. I mean, she could move to the divorce branch, join right. the women. Um, I I don't know anything about this relationship. <laughs> yeah, there's not enough to go on to make a true statement, but I'm going to go with yes. Here's what I would like. I would like to see more Daughter of Shanghai movies. I would like to see the two of them continue to be an investigative duo like in the Thin Man movies. Yes, that's exactly what I want. Daughter of Beijing sequel. Daughter of Daughter of Shanghai. The daughter of the daughter of Shanghai. Daughter of Shanghai, by the way, is the, I think, I can't remember if I said this, is the name of the dance performance she puts on in Porto One. Mm -hmm. Good name for a dance performance. Yeah. Good name for a movie. She is not, however, a daughter of Shanghai because she is born and raised in San Francisco. From America. Yes. Mark, if you have, I have already said it's Kelly the punching chauffeur. (laughs) So who from this movie would you date? I think, uh, I mean, real answer would probably be, Lan Ying, but you know my stance on dating main characters. So I'd probably go with... You could date Anthony Quinn, but he is a smuggler. No, I was going to go with who seems to be her, like, number two at the business, who says, like, we would bring shame on ourselves before disobeying you, because he seems like a loyal employee and also nice. He seems like a stand-up guy. And is willing to work for a woman. Now, Mark, I am genuinely curious. Do you think Daughter of Shanghai should be a musical? I think it could be very interesting as a musical. Yeah. I'm not a no on it. I do think, like, if I could do anything with Daughter of Shanghai, I would make it a longer movie from the 1930s. Yes. Like but that is impossible. Movie. Yeah. So, yeah. I can, it would be interesting to see this as a musical. I think this is my first anime Wong movie. It is definitely mine. So I am glad to have seen one now. And honestly, it seems that it's one of her best ones because she's actually the lead. Well, next week, we are going to be moving to the other end of the 20th century to 1992. And we're going to talk about Boomerang. I know nothing about this movie. It's a romantic comedy starring Eddie Murphy. Oh. At like the peak of his fame. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I am excited to check it out. I, you are not on Twitter, Mark, so you miss a lot of our Twitter controversies. It is true. But back in the spring, The Ringer did a rom-com week in which, as part of it, they published a list of the 100 best romantic comedies. And there were, the list contained uh, zero romantic comedies from before 1970. Okay. And I believe one from before 1980. Oh, my God. So this list, as you can imagine, was the subject of a lot of discussion. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) There might be some controversy there. But Boomerang was one of the few movies starring black people to make it onto that list. And I I will admit that that is what put it on my radar, and I'm excited for us to check it out. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right. Last question, Will. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from Daughter of Shanghai? Go big or go home. If you think someone's neat, try to get that relationship. My advice? Solve a crime together, because it's worked for them and a few other couples we've investigated. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye!
Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia? Lydia the tattooed lady. She has eyes that folks adore so, and a torso even more so. Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. La, la, la.